If you have a Bible, open it to Psalm 44, which I did not even turn to. Psalm 44. The psalmist writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Would you pray with me again? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. It's uh, impressive when you are paying attention how influential religion is in our world. Uh, People who are not believers at all will use religious phrases uh, to say things uh, without any religious conviction behind them whatsoever, and yet there is still some sense that what they're saying, if it's not true, it ought to be true. Uh, One of the most common, and and this I think will resonate with you, hopefully it's not a a phrase that you use a lot, uh, but, but when surprisingly justice is performed, when it didn't seem like it, it, it was going to be, people will often say, well, there's karma, right? Or another way of saying that is uh, what, what goes around comes around. Or you might hear the phrase, well, the universe was keeping score. Uh, but, but karma is a really interesting one because, because karma is, of course, uh, a prominent part of Buddhism and Hinduism, and yet the number of people who will sign off a tweet or a Facebook post with hashtag karma is like, I had no idea there were so many Buddhists in, in the world. When, when people say that, though, when people say that, they might not have any Buddhist convictions whatsoever, at least I hope they don't, but what they are saying is that we expect the world to make sense. If people do bad things, then bad things ought to happen to them. And, and, and sometimes we can say that, and it might almost be superstitious, but most of the time, there's this sense of hope that, that, that the world or the universe will make sense, will make sense, that, that, that if there's suffering in the world, the most comforting thing would be if the people who are suffering, that maybe they did something to deserve it, and then I can avoid that so I can avoid having the same bad things happen to me. Of course, the universe is not personal and it exercises no agency whatsoever. The universe doesn't. It's a created entity. It has no sovereign control. Karma is a Buddhist and a Hindu doctrine that's grounded in a false view of the nature of God and the nature of reality. The overwhelming majority of people who say things like this, they don't really believe that the universe is keeping score. They don't, they have no Buddhist or Hindu convictions, but what they are really saying is that I want things to make sense. Things ought to make sense. What goes around ought to come around. What they're really saying, what they're really saying is that there's some sort of hope behind it, hope behind it, that as long as I can avoid doing bad things, then I can expect that bad things won't happen to me. And from a Christian perspective, we can affirm some of that. We can affirm some of that. But we would do so because we believe that there is a perfect, holy God who is completely sovereign. He has created the physical universe with its laws, and he has created the moral universe with laws as well. There is, of course, some cause and effect in the moral world that God has created. The book of Proverbs makes that very clear, doesn't it? The book of Proverbs tells us that cheaters never prosper, and they don't, except when they do, right? And, and, and the wicked will be judged. We know that from the scriptures. One day, one day they'll be judged, and it's not always today. 
What happens when things don't appear to function in a simple cause and effect matter? What do we do when cheaters do win, when the dishonest do prevail, and when the wicked prosper? What do we do? What do we do when the honest are taken advantage of? Integrity is maligned and the righteous suffer. More to the point, let's make it personal. What do you do when your suffering is great and it seems out of step with how things ought to be? Now, these are questions that have perplexed people for a long, long time from like page two of the Bible on, right? The Bible is full of people asking questions like, why do the wicked prosper? Or simple, simply, how long, O oh Lord? How long? These are the kinds of questions that are asked in Psalm 44. This morning, if you're here, maybe you're not a Christian. Here's what I would like for the next 30 or 40 minutes. I would like for you to consider your life in the moral universe. Do you think you have received what's coming to you? And what reason would you give for feeling that something else ought to have happened to you? Or maybe something else ought to have been given to you. Why do you think that? I'm sure you do. Why? That's what I'd like for you to consider these next few minutes. Christian, I would invite you to consider the words of this psalm in light of your own circumstances. Are you going through suffering right now that is explicable, but it's still miserable? Are you going through suffering that is inexplicable to you? And there is a dissonance between what is happening to you on the one hand and what you feel ought to happen to you in light of God's promises on the other hand. And has that dissonance left you kind of confused or unmoored or discouraged? If that's the case, and I think I've hit probably every single person here, then this psalm is for you. Okay, so Psalm 44, what is it? Technically, we would say this is a psalm of lament that's coupled, like most of the psalms of lament are in the Bible, with a plea for deliverance or salvation of some sort. But to understand the frustration that the psalmist feels, we have to understand the covenantal context in which this psalm was written. It wasn't written yesterday. It wasn't written after the time of Christ. It was written in the BC era, before Christ, and we could even say the AM time BC, after Moses, before Jesus. Okay? After Moses, before Jesus. And, and, that, and, and there is a very specific covenant that was, uh, it, it, well, that, that dominated the life of the people of God, and it prescribed very, very specific rewards and curses for very specific behaviors. It was very much a case of, if, if you are old covenant Israel at the time this psalm was written, if you Israel will do this, the Lord would say, then I will respond in this way. Blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. That next month, when we finish up Deuteronomy, we're going to hit Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, I think, is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible for understanding the biblical storyline. And in that, there are 14 promises of blessing for obedience, followed by 54 promises of cursing for disobedience. The, the promises of blessing are holistic fruitful crops, lots of animals, health, peace from enemies, the curses for disobedience for the people of Israel, according to the Mosaic Covenant, they were just as holistic, famine, death, disease, destruction. In other words, for Israel, the moral universe made sense. If we obey, we will be blessed. But if we disobey, then bad things are going to happen to us. And of course, that's exactly how the, the, the Old Testament plays out. Israel is faithful, kind of, for a while, and they're blessed, and then they are routinely disobedient and get more and more disobedient until, they, uh, until all of the curses of, of the Old Covenant come upon them, including exile, the mother of all curses. More on that next month. 
The book of Proverbs, I mentioned earlier, functions under the Mosaic Covenant. Rewards are promised for wise choices, and they're the rewards promised in the Mosaic Covenant. We would expect that because the book of Proverbs was written in that covenantal context. If you're wise, if you're obedient, then good things will happen to you, whereas many of the consequences for foolishness or disobedience that we find in the book of Proverbs, those come right out of Deuteronomy 28. The, the, the curses for disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant. And, and that makes a lot of sense to people. The universe is working the way it's supposed to. If I'm good, good things will happen to me. If I'm bad, then bad things will happen to me. That's how the universe is supposed to work. Only it often doesn't work that way. Consider the book of Job. Here, bad things happen to Job, and he has no idea why. He just knows that he hasn't been faithless. He hasn't been disobedient. He keeps telling his friends who come to comfort him, right? Job's friends. Those are two words that that go together and instantly bring up negative connotations, right? Who wants to be Job's friend? No one, no one, because, because they are dismissed as being foolish, right? They say the wrong things. They show up to help, but they don't. It's almost like they're rubbing salt in the wound. But all of, uh, pretty much everything that Job's friends said to Job, you could find right in the book of Proverbs. The, the universe is supposed to make sense. Job, bad things are happening to you. You must have done something wrong. Confess your sin, and then God will bless you and reverse the cursing. And Job kept saying, no, I haven't done anything. And they said, oh, haven't you read Calvin's Institutes? We know all about total depravity, right? We know about those things. You're fooling yourself. You're lying to yourself if you think you have been obedient. You've done something wrong. Fess up. And Job kept saying, I don't know what I've done. I want to stand before God, right? We know what was going on. We know that Job actually was being cursed or bad things were happening to to him, not because of faithlessness, but precisely because he was faithful, right? Precisely that. One of the lessons of the book of Job is that life doesn't always make sense, that the moral universe is way more complicated than simple cause and effect. If I do good things, good things happen. If I do bad things, bad things will happen. In our psalm today, our psalm today, life was not making sense for the people of God. They were going through trials even though they had remained faithful. They were convinced of it. Psalm 44 records their divinely inspired response. So we're going to read through this. I'm going to give some commentary, and then we'll think about suffering as Christians. Look at verse, or at the first paragraph, verses one through three. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. All right, this is the introduction to the psalm. And the people of God, that's who's giving voice to this, they have heard all that the Lord did to bless them in the past. They inherited the land through the power of God. There was no question about that. The people of God know these things because they had heard about them. They had grown up hearing the stories of how Israel was formed, how Israel was rescued out of slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land. But right now, they don't know these things because they're experiencing them in the moment. It's all what they've heard in the past. God chose Israel. He displaced the nations in a miraculous display of power that left no doubt as to God's regard for Israel, the chosen people. 
God did this to fulfill promises that he had made to Abraham. If you're reading along in the, in the Bible plan, you, you have read all about that to this point with Abraham. God also did it to judge the other nations for their sin. We read that in Genesis chapter 15 this week. The sin of the Amorites would one day, God told Abraham, reach its full measure. And then at that point, I will bring your family into the land. Eventually, that's what happens. It takes hundreds of years, but the the full measure of their sin comes. God's long-suffering patience, it finally runs out. And so this is what Israel knew. Here's what they confessed to be true. Their salvation was from the Lord. They knew this. It was due entirely to the sovereign work of God. God had put them in the land. This is what they knew. God had acted this way in the past. They knew the character. They knew the promises of God. God had shown favor to them. And that's exactly what makes the rest of the psalm so puzzling. They knew God's commitment to Israel, but what was going on? What does this mean for us? Well, Christian, you you know the story of your salvation, right? If you have repented and believed the gospel, you know that the story of salvation is a story of what God has done for you. Every Christian has an amazing story to tell. While you were yet a sinner Christ died for you. You were, the scriptures tell us, by nature, before being born again, you were by nature an object of of God's wrath. And that God, in mercy and kindness, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for your sin. That's that's the gospel. That is your story. That is the the true measure of God's justice that, that ought to guide us in all of our moral reasoning. God is judge and he is merciful and he was merciful to me, a sinner. And so Christian, tell, tell that story. Tell that story. We, we, we can come up with that just from the intro to this psalm. Recite your story to the next generation so that they would know of the inheritance that comes to those who are in Christ and the blessing. More importantly, recite it to yourself so that it will anchor your soul. Come what may, you know God has loved you in the past. He has taken care of your most pressing problem and he did it at great cost to himself when it benefited him not at all. God loves you. You know that. Let that anchor your soul. You know the gospel. You know what he's done for you. And that can give us hope for what God is doing in your life right now. He can be trusted to carry you through to the end. But what will that look like? Let's go to the next paragraph. Verses 4 through 8. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. So here we have, after the intro, a statement of faith and resolve by the Israelites. And in light of what God has done for Israel in the past, they're saying, we will continue to believe in you, O Lord. We will trust you to fight our battles. Israel had always and would continue, they're, they're claiming here, to rely on God to give them victories. And there is, is no sense in this psalm so far that, that arrogance is is coming close to replacing dependence. They know that in the past it was entirely of God. The psalmist recognizes that even now that's the case. Statement of, statement of faith. Israel knows from whom their help comes. They, they know they're completely dependent upon the Lord. Even their victories are not merely because God happened to be stronger than their enemies, but because God had ordained and planned them, right? He determined a plan, and then he executed that plan. God's truly sovereign. And the question that's going to come up in the rest of the psalm is, was it only in the past that this was true? 
They grew up hearing the stories. Why are they not experiencing that kind of victory now? We should pause right here and just say that we trust that as God is now, he forever will be. As he was in the past, he will forever be. This is going to come ringing through this psalm, especially at the end. God is the, in theology we would say, the immutable one, the unchanging in his character and nature and purposes. Christian, do you, do you trust in the Lord or do you trust in your own self-sufficiency? How quickly are you to pray when trouble comes? Do you pray only for the big stuff, thinking, well, I can handle the little stuff? Maybe the greatest test of our faith will be how quick we are to pray for small things, because that expresses our utter dependence upon God. Or maybe, better yet, the best test of our faith will be, do we praise in times of trouble, or do we just go and complain? and ask for relief. Let's go to verse, verse 9, the third paragraph. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy, and the avenger. Okay, here's one of those negative buts that we find in Scripture. The but here is ominous, right? This is how things were in the past, but it is not how things are right now. Things are not as they should be. The hand of blessing has been removed, and it has been replaced with a hand of cursing. Notice that the psalmist here is not questioning God's sovereignty. He's not saying, oh, Lord, you were powerful in the past, but things have slipped out of control, slipped out of your hands. Oh, Lord, would you do something to, to change the course of things, regain control? No, th there's no sense of that. It's like, Lord, you have brought this upon us. Everything that is happening is because the Lord is behind it. Notice the you that dominates verses 9 through 14. It's all coming from God's hand. Every single wretched detail of what the Israelites were going through, it is coming from God. That's what they were confessing. That's what they believed. Whereas before they had conquered through the Lord, now it feels like they're being conquered by the Lord. They feel shame and disgrace. They feel every single taunt of the enemies. It's like a knife stuck between their ribs and twisted. It hurts. What's going on here is that God's people are suffering, and it made no sense to them. And here's why it makes no sense. Look at the next paragraph, verses 17 through 22. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, this is interesting. You would expect in verse 17, all this has, to read this way, all this has come upon us because we have forgotten you. And now we repent and Lord, start blessing us again. Right? But it says the exact opposite of that. 
Right? All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. The people of God had not broken the covenant. They had not been faithless. The evil that had befallen them was not a covenantal curse. They were absolutely not getting what they deserved. It was in spite of their faithfulness, not because of their unfaithfulness, that the judgment of God had fallen upon them. At least that's what they're saying. And again and again in this stanza, they plead their innocence. And, and, and they know they can't fool God. It's, I, I mean, it's not like saying, oh, God, you know, we've been really righteous as they you know, cross their fingers behind their back. Oh, oh, oh Lord, you know, like they're trying to pull one over on God. They know they can't claim to be righteous and, and fool God if they're not actually righteous. And they're adamant they had not been faithless. Okay, let me pause here and say, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Israel was totally faithless. They were sinners. They were getting what they deserved. There was some sin they didn't know about. And if they would just repent, then God would restore their fortunes. I know that's what you're thinking, right? I admit it. Admit it. You were thinking that a little bit. Okay, so now I'm going to criticize you. Do you know who you sound like when you say that? Job's friends. You sound just like Job's friends. I sound just like Job's friends, right? And again, who wants to be Job's friends? No one. No one ever aspires to be Job's friend. Right? That, that, that's not a category of person that anyone aspires to, right? We know the Israels are covenant breakers, and, and, and what? So this psalm, it's like they're essentially full of themselves. But that can't be the case. What, what do we do with inspiration? They're, they're claiming to be faithful was inspired by the Holy Spirit. What do we do with the corollary of inspiration? Inerrancy. Well, this is just false. They were just wrong. I don't, I don't think so. I I don't think we can go there. I think we have to take it at face value. The suffering that they're experiencing is not because of their sin. It's not because of their sin. Also, this passage is quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, and it only makes sense if we're reading it right here when we say the suffering Israel was going through was not because of their sin. Paul, Paul wrote this in Romans 8, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's right out of Psalm 44. No, in all these things, Paul goes on, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, we'll return to that passage later, but note now, Paul was crushed as an apostle. He suffered as an apostle precisely because he was a faithful apostle, not because he was faithless. What does this mean? Bad things happen to the people of God. We might even say this, bad things happen especially to the people of God. Now, why would I say that? Because Jesus warned us about that. He warned us about that, and it wasn't in the fine print right? It was big and bold. He promised that his followers would suffer. In the world, you will have tribulation, John 16, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul, in the book of Acts, through many tribulations, we, the people of God, must enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus and his apostles warned that suffering would come to those who follow him. This is what we sign up for when we come to Christ. I've I've said this many times. You probably heard it already uh, from me. One of the things I love about Jesus, he's not a bait and switch guy. He wants people to come in with their eyes open. This is what you're signing up for. He never, ever promises your best life now. He promises your best life one day. And he promises that he will be with you every step of the way until he does give us that best life. Why do Christians suffer, though? 
so let's get personal. Why do you suffer? Why do we suffer? Sometimes it's an easy answer because you've done something wrong. <laughs> because there is some cause and effect in this world. But oftentimes it's not that way. Sometimes there's another easy answer. The world and the devil seek to hurt and destroy anything that has to do with Jesus. What kind of suffering is in view here, particularly when, when, when Paul is talking about suffering and the suffering he undergoes as an apostle, as a Christian? Well, it turns out any and every kind of suffering. Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, second letter, 2 Corinthians 11. This is what Paul went through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Who would want to be a traveling companion with Paul? I have no idea. On, on frequent journeys, he goes on, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I'm just waiting for danger, Will Robinson, danger, right? And, and if you get that, then you're my age or older, right? Uh, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So Paul lists everything from overt religious persecution to hunger to just the daily stresses of being someone who cares. And he says this is all about suffering for Christ. All of these things fall within the purview of suffering for Jesus. And so what about, what about us? What about you? I know that, that some of you are persecuted for your faith, not in stoning, I hope, or, or lashes like Paul received, but, but the injustices, however relatively small, they still hurt. Some of you are facing frustrating illness. Some of you have experienced loss recently, right? and it hurts, and it hurts. Some of you are dealing with family issues that are devastating and discouraging. Some of you are in relationships that are deeply disappointing. Some of you aren't in relationships and you wish you were, and that's deeply disappointing. God has not answered your prayer as you desire for some reason. And if Psalm 44 is correct, then all of these things hurt and all of them are controlled by a sovereign God. And because you are a Christian, you need to know that there is more than simple cause and effect at work here. It's more complicated than just, I did something wrong, so now something bad has happened. What that also means is that your response, it does matter. It does matter. But that still doesn't answer the question, why? Why am I suffering? So I'm going to give you seven reasons from the Bible that I think Christians suffer. Why seven? Well, isn't it obvious? Right? I couldn't land it. I couldn't end at six, and I couldn't think of eight. So here's where they are. Uh, I am not trying to put a, put a happy face on suffering or to try to explain it away. Evil and suffering are always to be protested against and fought against. I remember when I got a text from my wife. I was in class. Of all things, I was in class um, on, on prayer and providence. <laughs> and I'm here with Gary Brashears, and I tell him at the break, I just got a text that, that my wife has been diagnosed with cancer. This was like four years ago. And I, I will never forget what Gary said to me. He said, I protest. I protest. There was no been put on it or nothing like that, or like, oh, well, you know, no happy words, just this is wrong, and I protest. And so I want you to hear, hear me say this now, and I firmly believe this, evil and suffering are always to be protested and fought against. God can do amazing things and will do amazing things through them, and, and, I, and I believe in a sovereign God who has ordained all things, but that doesn't mean that we let's let God do the moral calculus. We fight against evil and we protest against it all the time. Okay? So that's the groundwork there.
Reason number one, why suffering comes to Christians. To hurt Jesus is the first one. The world and the devil, they hate Jesus, therefore they will hate you. Jesus told us about this, right? He said, people will hate you because they hate me. As a matter of fact, there's going to come a time, he said, when people will think they're serving God and kill you, and kill you, right? And, and then he says, uh, but really, it's a me thing, not a you thing, so don't worry about it. My shoulders are big enough for this. Okay. <laughs> but, but he told us that, right? So, so there's one category. There's, there's almost always more going on to suffering, though, even when it is demonically executed. Number two, why, why do Christians suffer? to discipline the children of the Lord. Here's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. Okay, this is another obvious one. It it kind of fits into that cause and effect of things has a lot to do with our expectations of getting what we deserve. You do bad things, then bad things happen to you. God controls that. But it's not always that way, and even discipline isn't always because you did something wrong. The discipline of the Lord is not a bad thing. It is always specifically tailored to deal with us where we are, and the Lord's hand behind it is always good and loving, as this passage makes clear. God disciplines us as a father disciplines his children. That leads us to the next reason why Christians suffer. Reason number three, to sanctify us. James wrote this, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word various, it basically means of any kind. Like everything is covered here. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here, suffering comes from the same hand, but it's not first and foremost corrective. It's not necessarily because you did something wrong. Sometimes suffering is introduced into our lives. It's not a response to a wrong, but it's directed by God to grow us. It's for our good. This would be more like a coach training us with difficult exercises to build us up. Doesn't make the suffering more pleasant, but there's a category of the Lord doing this, and James instructs us to maintain the right perspective in the midst of it. We should rejoice, not because we're suffering, but because of what God is doing in the midst of it, okay? So I, I want to make that clear. We don't, oh, good, I'm suffering. This is awesome. No, uh, it, the eyes of faith that are looking beyond it. Like, I sure like doing these push-ups. This is awesome. I love the way my muscles feel when they break down and they're so sore I can't lift anything. No, it's because I'm going to recover and I'm going to get stronger, right? That's, that's the, the, the eyes of faith. But the, even that doesn't explain all suffering, so we move on. Number four, to glorify God. Y'all remember, in uh, those of you who have read through the Gospel of John before, in John chapter 9, there's the story of the man who had been born blind. And, and the disciples are walking along with Jesus, and they see him, and they think, hey, this would be a good time to ask a question. And, and so they say, why was this man born blind, Jesus? Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? Hashtag karma, right? Or hashtag Job's friends, Right? The word, and, 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 and Jesus says, none of those things. None of those things. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, here's, <laughs> I want to remind us that whenever we read that story, and it's an amazing story, right? Um, that we, we read John chapter 9, and, John, and, and of course, Jesus heals the man, and it's, and it's awesome, and the man gives incredible testimony to God, and then things get worse for him after that, right? But um, we read that story in less time than it takes us to drink a cup of coffee, and the extent of the man's lifelong suffering is often lost on us. We might even think, oh, that lucky man, that lucky man. I, I wish that was me whose eyes Jesus 
opened, and then I could see Jesus, and I could give fervent testimony to the Lord and, and go down in the book of John forever and ever. I, I wish that would have been me. And, 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 at love, and at one level, I suppose we would be right for thinking that, because I'm, I'm guessing the man right now is very grateful for all that he had gone through. But we need to remember this. This man suffered daily his entire life without any indication that he was that what he was going through was going to be used by God in an amazing way. He had a difficult home life. We see that from the response of his parents. He had been blind since birth, and he was begging for survival. Day after day after day. Don't minimize that. Now, it doesn't make it untrue that what he went through was going to bring incredible glory to Jesus. And I'll bet right now, in the presence of Christ, he's grateful that he was appointed for such a thing. But just remember that his suffering was miserable, and it was probably as puzzling to him or more so than it was to his disciples, or to Jesus' disciples. I imagine there was many a day where he said, did I do something wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Was it my parents? Christian, it can be simultaneously true that your suffering is brutal and that you should be the object of compassion because of its brutality and that you are also appointed for such a thing so that Christ can be glorified in you. Jesus will never, ever minimize the suffering, but he will one day make it worth it. In this case, God is glorified when he brings the man out of his suffering. And he can do exactly that. And we should thank the Lord when he does. God is routinely praised in Scripture for his role as Savior And part of what he saves us from is the affliction that we undergo, even when, especially when, it's an affliction that is ordained by God. But that doesn't explain all suffering. Number five, to experience the comfort of God and enable ministry. And this, I think, is obvious to to most of us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And then he goes on. I'm sure you're aware of that passage. I, I think this is the most obvious, and, and, and I see that here all the time, where so many of you have gone through difficult things, and that uniquely qualifies you to minister to others, where you take the comfort that you received and you use that to comfort others. That's another category. Why am I going through this? Because God is training you. There's going to be someone who's one day going to be exactly where you're at, and they're going to need to hear your words of testimony, how God got you through this. Number six, to experience the power and love of Christ. We suffer so that we can be saved and experience the power and love of Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes this, to keep me from being conceited, I mean, Paul was the apostle Paul after all, right? Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Recall our psalm. It feels like so long ago, Psalm 44. Israel knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. Struggling, which makes people feel weak and helpless, is an opportunity for us to see the power of the Lord at work in us. It it clarifies our thinking. It enables us to recognize what what is actually always true, we're completely dependent upon the Lord. And number seven, and this is the most complicated one, we suffer as Christians to fill up the sufferings of Christ. 
And I think this last reason is probably what Psalm 44 is really about. And it's complicated. We can get some help from some verses, though. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul writes this. Now I, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul writes to the Colossian Christians. He was suffering, but he was doing it for their sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. We think, how on earth could that be? How could Paul be adding anything to the suffering of Jesus? Isn't Jesus' work on the cross sufficient for all, for all time? And the answer is yes, 100% absolutely don't, (laughs) don't ever question the sufficiency of Christ's suffering and death on the cross. And nevertheless, Paul does say, I'm filling up what was lacking. What, what could that mean? We don't attend for, I'm sorry, we don't atone for our sin in any way. We can't do that. And if you do not understand yourself to be a Christian, you need to know that your only hope is placing your trust in the one who died on your behalf. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. You can't add anything to it. It's all Jesus or nothing, right? It's all Jesus or nothing. Nevertheless, Paul says he was filling up sufferings, filling up the sufferings that were lacking in Christ. Maybe Revelation 6 can help us with this. In Revelation 6, there is a vision that John gets of these like disembodied souls who are standing, however a disembodied soul stands, before the throne of God. And here's what they say. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Apparently, these were the people who were martyred for their testimony for Christ. They had been killed because they followed Jesus. And now they're before the omnipotent, holy, just God. And they're saying, what's going on? When will you avenge us? When is there going to be justice? Verse 11 They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long, O Lord, before you avenge us? Not yet, because there's got to be more of you before I act. Why? What's the number? What's the calculus? And I don't know. God does, though. God knows this. It appears that in God's economy, there is a certain amount of persecution and suffering that God intends his people to suffer for his name's sake. And that raises the question, why? What does God gain by us suffering for him? I don't know. I don't know. But I I got some guesses. So that's what these are. I think evil is exposed as truly evil when it lashes out at God, especially when it lashes out at God through his people. Also, mercy, justice, love, holiness are all magnified in that suffering. I do know that Old Testament Israel understood that they played a role of vicarious suffering on behalf of the world. And they were right in that understanding. Look at, like, Isaiah 53, for example. God's people will always be asked to do such things. What Israel didn't understand is that their role could only, that role of suffering fully, completely for others, it could only be filled by someone who was sinless and perfect, not by sinful. Israel as a collective whole. Jesus came and he did that. But now in God's economy, he has given us the inestimable privilege of suffering for the cause of Christ. So that God's holiness can be magnified, his mercy, his kindness, his love, his justice. He may ask you to go through things. He will ask you to go through things for his name's sake. And I know this, that God will never ever be your debtor. He will always make good on it. We should conclude. Look at the last paragraph. Back to Psalm 44. 
Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Given everything that the psalmist has confessed, it only makes sense to call out to the Lord for deliverance. They didn't blame God. They didn't question his character or his attributes, but they did alert him to their lived experience. They were suffering, and they knew that God knew that, but they still made that known. They didn't thank him for their suffering. We should thank the Lord for what he's doing in the midst of our trials, but we are never called to call evil good. On the contrary, like I said, we call evil what it is, evil, and we protest it and we fight against it. And our primary means, not our only means, but our primary means of fighting against evil is to pray against it. So Israel did what they ought to have. They went to the Lord and they appealed to the one who could save them. And they did so on the basis of what they knew to be true. God is loving. His covenant loving, his loyal love is powerful, is faithful. And so we should do likewise. Recall his kindness to you in your salvation, in your adoption. When you are hurting, recall his promises. Meditate on his character day and pray with fervency that he might deliver you and all his people. And know this, what the writer of Psalm 44 knew. Your response to suffering matters matters more than you can imagine. Job's faithfulness reverberated through the heavenlies. Like everyone was watching, is Job going to be faithful? Your response matters too. Every prayer uttered in your weakness is magnified through the heavens and it is loud in the ears of God. Every blow endured by you is personally felt by your loving Savior. Jesus feels everything you're going through. Every tear shed is precious to the Lord, and he keeps every one of them. God is keeping score. The universe isn't, but God is. And the God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to make you stand to the end. We know this because in the end, Jesus Christ will be vindicated. Throughout the cosmos, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be proven just. He will be proven right. And for those who are in Christ, when Jesus is vindicated, you will be too. Amen? All right, let me me pray for us. Father, we're grateful uh, for... uh, your kindness and your generosity. We, we know that you are powerful. We know that you are holy and you are good. But there are times where we go through things that it just doesn't feel right. It feels inexplicable. Give us, give us eyes to see that there is more going on behind the scenes. There's more to this moral universe than simple cause and effect. Father, may we know and feel feel the the truths that that Job came to know. May we not revert to being like Job's friends. May we have the, the faith of Israel in this psalm, Psalm 44, to, fer- to persevere, to be faithful, to keep hoping and to keep trusting. And Father, when we run out of hope and when we run out of trust, we pray, Father, that you would continue to give more and more and more. Sustain us and hold us up, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.